Section 6 of The Jolly Parisienne and Other Novelettes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lisa Reichert. Mademoiselle Flavie by Emile Zola. Translated by George D. Cox. Chapter 1. A Startling Proposition. The room in which Nantes had resided since his arrival from Marseilles was on the top floor of a house in the Rue de Lille, next to the mansion of Baron Donvilliers, a member of the Council of State. This house belonged to the Baron who had built it on the site of some old outbuildings. By leaning out of his window, Nantes could see a corner of the Baron's garden, across which some magnificent trees cast their shade. Beyond, by looking over their leafy crests, a glimpse of Paris was to be had, the open space left by the Seine with the Tuileries, the Louvre, the Quays, a whole sea of roofs, and the Père Lachaise cemetery in the dim distance. Nantes' room was a small attic with a dormer window amid the tiles. He had furnished it simply with a bed, a table, and a chair. He had taken up his abode there because he was attracted by the low rent, and had made up his mind to rough it until he found a situation of some kind. The dirty paper, the black ceiling, the general misery and barrenness of this garret did not deter him. Living in sight of the Louvre and the Tuileries, he compared himself to a general sleeping in some miserable inn at the roadside, within view of the wealthy city which he means to carry by assault on the morrow. Nantes' story was a short one. The son of a Marseille mason, he had begun his studies at the school in that town, stimulated by the ambitious affection of his mother, who had set her heart upon making a gentleman of him. His parents had stinted themselves to give him a good education, but his mother having died, Nantes had been obliged to accept an unprofitable situation in the office of a merchant, where for twelve years he had led a life of exasperating monotony. He would have taken himself off a score of times if his sense of filial duty had not tied him to Marseilles, for his father, who had fallen from a scaffolding, was quite unable to work. One night, however, when Nantes returned home, he found the old fellow dead, with his pipe lying still warm at his side. Three days later the young man had sold the few sticks about the place and started for Paris, with just two hundred francs in his pocket. Nantes had inherited boundless ambition from his mother. He was a young fellow of ready decision and firm will, and even when quite a boy he had been wont to say that he was a power. He was often laughed at when he so forgot himself as to repeat his favourite expression confidingly, I am a power, an expression which sounded comical indeed when one looked at him in his thin black coat, all out at the elbows, and with the cuffs halfway up his arms. However, he had gradually made power a religion, seeing nothing else in the world, and feeling convinced that the strong are necessarily the successful. According to his idea, to be willing and able ought to suffice one. All the rest was of no importance. One Sunday, while he was walking about alone in the scorching suburbs of Marseilles, he felt genius within him. In his innermost being there was, as it were, an instinctive impulse driving him onwards, and when he went home to eat his plate of potatoes with his bedridden father, he was determined in his own mind that some day or other he would carve his way in that world in which, at the age of thirty, he was still a nonentity. 
This was no low greed, no appetite for vulgar pleasures. It was the clearly defined longing of a will and intellect which, not being in their proper sphere, drove to attain to that sphere by the natural force of logic. As soon as Nantes felt the paving stones of Paris under his feet, he thought that he had merely to put forth his hands to find a situation worthy of him. On the very first day he began his search. He had been given various letters of introduction which he presented, and, moreover, he called upon several of his own countrymen, thinking that they would help him. But at the end of a month there was still no result. The time was a bad one, people said, beside which they merely made promises to break them. His little store of money was swiftly diminishing. Indeed, at the most, some twenty francs were left. It was upon these twenty francs, however, that he was forced to live for another month, eating nothing but bread, scouring Paris from morning till evening, and going home to bed without a light, feeling tired to death, and still as poor as ever. His courage did not fail him, but a mute anger arose within him. Destiny appeared to him illogical and unjust. One evening Nantes returned home supperless. He had finished his last morsel of bread on the day before. No money, and not a friend to lend him even a franc. Rain had been falling all day, one of those raw downfalls which are so cold in Paris. Rivers of mud were running in the streets, and Nantes, drenched to the skin, had gone to Bercy and afterwards to Montmartre, where he had been told of work. But the situation at Bercy was filled up, and at Montmartre they had decided that his handwriting was not good enough. Those were his last two hopes. He would have accepted anything with the certainty that he would soon command success. He only asked for bread at first, something to live upon in Paris, a foundation stone upon which he might build his fortune. He walked slowly from Montmartre to the Rue de Lille with his heart full of bitterness. The rain had ceased falling and busy throngs crowded the streets. He stopped for a few minutes in front of a money-changer's office. Five francs would, perhaps, suffice him to become one day the master of them all. On five francs he could indeed live for a week, and in a week a man may achieve great things. While he was dreaming thus a cab ran against him and splashed him with mud. He then walked on more quickly, setting his teeth and experiencing a savage desire to rush with clenched fists upon the crowd which barred the way, thus taking a kind of vengeance for the cruelty of fate. In the Rue Richelieu he was almost run over by an omnibus, but he made his way to the Place du Carrousel, whence he threw a jealous glance at the Tuileries. On the Saint-Père bridge a little well-dressed girl obliged him to deviate from the straight path which he was following with the obstinacy of a wild boar tracked by hounds, and this deviation appeared to him a supreme humiliation. The very children prevented his progress. Finally, when he had taken refuge in his room as a wounded animal returns to its lair to die, he threw himself heavily upon his chair, dead beat, gazing at his trousers which the mud had stiffened, and at his worn-out boots which had left a track of wet on the floor. The end had come then. Nantes debated how he should kill himself. His pride held good, and he imagined that his suicide would injure Paris. To be a power, to feel one's own worth, and not to find a soul to appreciate you, not one to give you the first franc which you have ever wanted. 
It seemed monstrous to him, and his whole being revolted at the thought. Then he felt an immense regret as his glance fell upon his useless arms. No work had any terror for him. With the end of his little finger he would have raised the world. And yet there he was, cast into a corner, reduced to impotence, and fuming with impatience like a caged lion. But presently he became calmer. Death seemed to him grander. When he was a little boy he had been told the story of an inventor who, having constructed a marvellous machine, had one day smashed it to pieces with a hammer, because of the indifference of the world. Well, he was that man. He bore within him a new force, a rare mechanism of intelligence and will, and he was about to destroy his machine by dashing out his brains in the street. The sun was going down behind the tall trees of the Danvilliers mansion, an autumn sun it was, with golden rays lighting up the yellow leaves. Nantes rose as if attracted by the farewell beaming of the heavenly body. He was about to die, he wanted light. For a moment he leaned out of the window. Between the masses of foliage he had often seen a tall, fair young girl, walking with a queenly step in the garden. He was not romantic. He had passed that age when young men in garrets dream that well-born ladies approach them with their love and fortunes. Yet it chanced that, at this supreme hour of suicide, he suddenly recollected that fair and haughty girl. What could be her name? He knew not, but at the same time he clenched his fists, for his only feeling was one of hatred for the inhabitants of that mansion, where glimpses of luxury were afforded by the windows partially open, and he muttered in a burst of rage, I would sell myself, I would sell myself, if someone would only give me the first coppers I need for my fortune to come. This idea of selling himself occupied his mind for a moment. If there had been such a thing as a pawn-shop where people advanced money on energy and willingness, he would have gone and pledged himself. He set about imagining cases. A politician might buy him to make a tool of him, a banker to make use of every atom of his intelligence, and he accepted, scorning honour, and telling himself that it would suffice if he some day acquired strength and ended by winning the fight. Then he smiled. Did a man ever get a chance to sell himself? Rogues, who watch every opportunity, die of want without finding a purchaser. Now that suicide seemed his only course, he was fearful lest he should be overcome by cowardice, and he tried in this way to divert his thoughts. He had sat down again, swearing that he would throw himself out of the window as soon as it was dark. So great was his fatigue, however, that he fell asleep upon his chair. Suddenly he was awakened by the sound of a voice. It was the doorkeeper of the house, who was showing a lady into his room. "'Sir,' the doorkeeper began, "'I took the liberty to come up.' Then, seeing no light in the room, she quickly went downstairs and returned with a candle. She seemed to know the person whom she had brought with her, being at once complacent and respectful. "'There,' said she, leaving the room after placing the candle on the table, "'You can talk at your ease. No one will disturb you.' Nantes, who had awoke with a start, looked with astonishment at the lady. She had now raised her veil and appeared to be about five-and-forty, short, very stout, and with the face of a devotee. He had never seen her before. 
When he offered her the only chair, casting an inquiring glance at her, she gave her name. Mademoiselle Chouin, I have come, sir, to talk to you about a very important affair. Nantes had sat down on the edge of the bed. The name of Mademoiselle Chouin told him nothing, and his only course was to wait until she thought fit to explain herself. But she seemed in no hurry to do so. She had given a glance round the tiny room and appeared to be hesitating as to the way in which she should start the conversation. Finally, she spoke in a very gentle voice, emphasizing her remarks with a smile. "'Well, sir, I come as a friend. I have been told your touching story. Do not think that I am a spy. My only wish is to be of use to you. I know how full of trials your life has been till now, with what courage you have struggled to find a situation, and the final result of all your painful efforts. Once more, sir, forgive me for intruding upon you. I assure you that sympathy alone—' Nantes, however, did not interrupt her. His curiosity was aroused, and he surmised that the doorkeeper of the house had furnished the lady with all these details. Mademoiselle Chouin, being at liberty to continue, seemed solely desirous of paying compliments and putting things in the most attractive way. "'You have a great future before you, sir,' she resumed. "'I have taken the liberty to follow your endeavours, and I have been greatly struck by your praiseworthy courage in misfortune. In one word, in my opinion there is a great future before you, if someone gives you a helping hand.' She stopped again. She was waiting for a word. The young man, who believed that the lady had come to offer him a situation, replied that he would accept anything, but she, now that the ice was broken, asked him point-blank, "'Would you have any objection to marry?' "'Marry!' cried Nantes. "'Goodness, madam, who would have me? Some poor girl that I could not even feed?' "'No, a very pretty girl, very rich, splendidly connected, "'who will at once put you in possession of the means to attain to the highest position.' "'Nantas laughed no longer. "'Then what are the terms?' he asked, instinctively lowering his voice. "'The girl has been unfortunate, and you must own her offspring,' said Mademoiselle Chouin, "'putting aside her unctuous phraseology in her desire to come straight to the point.' Nantes' first impulse was to turn the woman out of the door. "'It's an infamous thing you propose,' he muttered. "'Infamous!' exclaimed Mademoiselle Chouin, affecting her honeyed tones again. "'I can't admit that ugly word. The truth is, sir, that you will save a family from despair. Her father knows nothing as yet. She has not long been in this condition, and it was I myself who conceived the idea of marrying her as soon as possible.' representing the husband to be the cause of the trouble. I know her father. It would kill him. My plan would soften the blow. He would think the wrong half redressed. The unfortunate part of it is that the real culprit is a married man. Ah, sir, there are men who really have no moral sense. She might have gone on like this for a long while, for Nantes was not listening to her. He was thinking, why should he refuse? Had he not been proposing to sell himself a little while back? Very well, here was a buyer. Fair exchange is no robbery. He would give his name, and he would be given a situation. It was an ordinary contract. He looked at his muddy trousers and felt that he had eaten nothing since the day before. All the disgust of his two months' struggling and humiliation rose up within him. At last he was about to set his foot on the world which had repulsed him. 
and driven him to the verge of suicide. I accept, he said curtly. Then he demanded a clear explanation from Mademoiselle Chouin. What did she want for her services? She protested at first that she wanted nothing. However, she ended by claiming twenty thousand francs out of the dowry which the young man would receive. And as he did not haggle over the terms, she became expansive. Listen, she said, it was I who thought of you, and the young lady did not refuse when I mentioned your name. Oh, she will thank me later on. I might have got a title. I know a man who would have jumped at the chance, but I preferred to choose someone outside of the poor child's sphere. It will appear more romantic. And then I like you. You are good-looking and have plenty of sense. You will make your way, and you mustn't forget me. Remember that I am devoted to you. So far no name had been mentioned, and upon Nantes making an inquiry in this respect, the old maid stood up and said, introducing herself afresh, Mademoiselle Chouin, I have been living as governess in Baron Donvilliers' house since the Baroness's death. I educated Mademoiselle Flavie, the Baron's daughter. Mademoiselle Flavie is the young lady in question. Then she withdrew, after formally placing on the table an envelope containing a five-hundred-franc note. It was an advance which she herself made to defray the preliminary expenses. When Nantes found himself alone, he went to the window again. The night was very dark. Nothing was to be seen but the black masses of shadow cast by the trees. One window only in the gloomy frontage of the mansion showed a light. So it was that tall, fair girl who walked with such a queenly step and did not deign to notice him. She or some other what mattered it. The girl was no part of the bargain. Then Nantes raised his eyes still higher, upon Paris roaring in the gloom, upon the quays, the streets, the squares, upon the whole left bank of the river, illuminated by the flickering gaslights, and like a superior being he addressed the city, saying, Now you are mine. End of section 6 Read by Lisa Reichert